Is it hot in here? Yeah. Well, at least y'all don't take your coats off. I turned to John during one of the songs. I said, it feels hot in here. And I got the normal look I got from him, which is, it's just another one of your crazy ideas, Chip. I know you've taken your coat off back there, John, now that you're down. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3, we continue uh, in this summer doing a study on Ephesians. If you'd like to turn there, uh, use one of the Pew Bibles, page 977. We're in the uh, second half of Ephesians 3. We're moving along in a very fast clip to get through all six chapters with the weeks that we have. Just a little background for those who have not been with us. The Apostle Paul is writing this to a, a, a congregation, a church that he, he had led many of these people to Christ some years before when he preached the gospel there in that city because of the... Uh, the tourist trade around the Temple of Diana, one of the wonders, architectural wonders of the ancient world, a riot broke out. And it was it's one of the most um, vivid scenes in all of the book of Acts uh, where he could have easily been killed by the crowd did not cooler heads prevail. Anyway, that church was birthed out of such a situation. They have been walking with Christ for some years now. Paul is in Rome under arrest, and so he's writing from uh, confinement, from imprisonment. And now in chapter 3, he, he tells about how he has prayed for them and how he is praying for them. So if you ever wonder how to pray for yourself or for your friends or for your children or for your grandchildren or for your spouse or for your pastor or whoever it might be, we're going to look at the content of such a prayer beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray before we look at God's word. Our Father, we need, we need you to do in our lives what the Apostle Paul saw you do in his life and what he prayed for you to do in the lives of these Ephesian brothers and sisters. For those of us that are weak, weak spiritually, weak in our faith, uh, weak in our perseverance, we pray that you might use this, even today, these moments, to give us strength in you. We pray if we do not yet understand why Christ came, and how that applies to us, that you would open our eyes to the truth during this time together. May we not leave here the same as we arrived. In Jesus' name, amen. Now imagine signing your name along with 55 other men, signing your name to a document that by doing so, you knew you were committing high treason against the ruling government. You knew that that act would most likely change your life, making it much more difficult, maybe even leading to your death. And yet you decide to do it. And so you, along with 
Most of the other 55 men who signed that Declaration of Independence actually signed it on August the 2nd, 1776. You knew that you would be putting your own life, the lives of your families, at risk. Would you make such a sacrifice? What would, what would cause you to do that? Because we know several did face imprisonment, the loss of property, the burning of their homes, their families imprisoned. What makes a person do that? Is it love of country? Is it hatred of the ruling country? Is it love of family? Is it just principle or conscience? Is it a cavalier attitude? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, as I mentioned to you, he wrote these words while he was under arrest in the city of Rome. He's a prisoner. He has suffered the loss of his freedom because he has preached the good news of Christ to the Gentile world. What motivated him to risk loss of freedom and potential execution for those people to hear the gospel? Well, we find a lot of the answer here in this passage. I just want us to focus on verses 14, really 14 through 19, and we'll just move through those. Let's look at the first couple of verses where I read it, but let me reread it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, and so forth. So we have the fact that, that Paul prayed. There's a simple observation that he prayed, and he prayed frequently for others. He did not just pray for himself. He had a ministry through prayer. Even in prison, he was still ministering. How? By praying for others. Now, I've been here long enough that I, I've had especially older people or ill people tell me I feel so useless. I feel I have nothing to offer. Uh, I feel, when I'll ask them to do something, well, you, you probably want to ask somebody younger. I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of, listen, you can have a ministry of prayer. Here's a man who had his freedom taken away from him. He's in prison. He's used to moving around, going from city to city, preaching with, with other, other people. Now he can't do that. And yet he's just as useful. How? Through the ministry of prayer. You know the name of William Carey? You've probably heard that, even if you don't remember who he was. He lived 200 years ago, and he was a shoe repairman in England. And God put on his heart concern for the unreached peoples of the world. And so as he would work on his shoes, he had a map of the world up before him, and he would pray for those sections of the world where people lived that were yet to be reached with the gospel. Now, we know that from then he went on to India, and he served for 42 years. And while he was in India as a missionary, and we call him the father of modern-day missions, he and his co-workers translated the Bible into 25 different languages. Folks, this is pre-computers. This is pre, uh, what's that software program they're always promoting on with the program, Rosetta Stone. I mean, they didn't have all that. 15, 25 Indian languages and a total of 40, the New Testament. The Old Testament was in 25, the New Testament into 40 languages. Many books have been written about William Carey. But I don't know, and perhaps it's out there, but I don't know of any books written about his sister. He had a younger sister who was a bedridden cripple. And so from India, he would write to her about the details and the problems of their work. And guess what she did? She took those letters and hour after hour, week after week, for over 50 years, she prayed to the Lord for him and the work that they were doing in India. 
So I wonder if we could know who was responsible for the success of William Carey's ministry. You can have a worldwide impact for praying for others. Paul certainly did not think he was uh, out of the loop simply because he was in prison. He could still pray. He says, I bow my knees. I bow my knees before the Father. Now, we don't take that, that every time we pray, we must kneel down. But we do know that posture is important. It expresses reverence. I know I've, I've had a number of you through the years tell me, well, it's not reverent something or not, people talking before the service starts or, or uh, how somebody's dressed. Well, uh, I think we should be reverent in worship. It's just different. We know what isn't reverent, typically, but if we could worship with the ministries we support in Haiti that will meet today for six hours and spend probably two of it in prayer, they would look at us as highly irreverent. What did we do during our prayer a few minutes ago? We sat down. They would see that as highly irreverent. We sat down when I read to you the Bible. That is seen as highly irreverent. I'm just trying to say to a certain degree, uh, to a certain degree that is cultural. But when we get to the Bible, we see certain postures for prayer. And here he bows. What does bowing show? It shows humility that you're looking up. You were putting yourself under another. Uh, it also shows intensity. Intensity. Now, the normal way that Jews would pray, how did they do it? Speak to me, you know? They stood, thank you, their hands up, and their eyes toward heaven. That's why when we have in the New Testament, when Christ is uh, praying, like before the feeding of the multitude, it said he lifted his eyes toward heaven. And that's, uh, that was the typical posture for prayer. Now, he says, I pray to my Father. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. How does God become our Father? John 1 tells us, as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. By believing in Christ, believing his claim, he was the Son of God, that he was the Redeemer, by believing that he died an atoning death on the cross for our sin, that he rose literally from the dead, and is alive, and when we trust him, we are adopted into God's family. We are made believers. We are members of the household of God. We are adopted into his family. Now, I was invited a few weeks ago to be, or a couple of weeks ago, to be at an adoption there at the courthouse across the street. You see these grandchildren adopted, and I'm losing count. <laughs> They're ten. I'm not that old to have ten grandchildren. I keep telling myself that. But Jay Strickland said, come on over. There are going to be two families. We'll meet in the judges' chambers. They read through a written document. And it had an effect on me I was not expecting. I was moved. I was moved to tears and standing in the hallway and seeing this other family coming right behind and see all these people embracing. And what a happy day it was. And one of the moms turned. I don't know the situation with the other family, but they turned to this little girl and they said, look, in just a moment, she's going to be your real sister. That's what God does. He adopts us into his family. We aren't born into it naturally. We have to be adopted. And we're adopted through faith in Christ. And then we call him Father. And that's what Paul is saying here. Well, what does he pray about? Enough of that. Let me keep moving forward. Verse 16 tells us he prays 
that God would strengthen them internally. Verse 16, let me find it right here, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Who wants to be weak? No one wants to be weak. Don't we desire strength? And here he wants strength in the inner being. That's the biblical term for that, that part of ourselves that's the new nature when we're adopted into his family, this new life, this new wills, new emotions, new affections, and to be strengthened there. How does this happen? Through his spirit, it tells us, through the Holy Spirit. If this prayer is answered, what would it look like? Well, thankfully, we have another verse written about the same time that we call a parallel passage in Colossians, and he expounds on this. And he says, he prays that we would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. So this type of strength that Paul is praying for brings patience. Uh, it's strength to persevere when we go through trials. It's strength to resist temptation. It is strength to do what is right when it's hard. It's strength to be long-suffering. That means to put up with one another's irritating ways, to bear with one another, not to be re resentful, not to be retaliatory. And Paul is saying, I am praying, these are my words, I am praying God will work in your life to empower you mightily. And if he answers that, this is what it will look like. You will be steadfast in your faith. You will persevere. You will be long-suffering, and you will have joy. That is what I'm looking for. That's what Paul essentially is praying for them, and I think what we should pray for ourselves. Do you desire this type of strength? And it comes only from the Spirit of God. We can't conjure it up. It's not from strength of our own will. It is from God himself. And then look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded with love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and so forth. So God wants you to be indwelt with Christ by faith. Now, these people were believers, and we could say, wait, I thought all believers are indwelt with Christ. Why is he still praying that? Well, here we look to our theologian Charles Hodge from the past, and he said the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. It is a thing of degrees. And so what Paul is praying for in your life, what we should pray for in our lives as a believer, is that Christ would have unrestricted access. Unrestricted access. So it's not that we have more of him, it's that he has more of you, of your life. Now years ago, there was a little booklet about that big and about that thick that was written, a little pamphlet, by a man named Robert Munger. Robert Munger was a professor at Fuller Seminary in California. And the title, and I remember because it caught my eye in the little bookstore in my home church in Alabama, and it said, My Heart, Christ Home. My Heart, Christ Home. I thought that was an odd title. Well, Robert Munger's little booklet had a, had a big impact on a lot, a lot of people, at least in America and maybe in other parts of the world. Here was the premise. The premise is very simple. He said that your house is your life. So you take your life, and when Christ comes into it, when you receive him by faith, then it's as though he comes into your house to dwell. And your life is a house with many rooms. And 
whether we realize it or not, consciously or unconsciously, we lock off certain rooms from him. You ever rent a house or a condominium at the beach? And the owner, you know, oh, well, that's the owner's. That key won't work there. It's just exactly where you want to put your floats and your bicycles, you know, and sure enough, it's locked off, no access. Well, that's the picture. Robert Munger says Christ comes into a house, your, your life, your house, and so you immediately say, well, here's some rooms I want you to dwell. But then there's another room back here, and maybe you're saying, I don't want you to go in there. That may be your, uh, your grudge room, <laughs> these unforgiven things that you've not let go, that you hold against someone else. And say, I, you know, you're welcome to reside in these other rooms, but how about staying out of this one? I've got a lock on here. Maybe here is your work. You're in business world, how you handle money, how you compete. Does Christ have access? Does he dwell in that room? Or maybe it's your thought life. Well, it could be anything. It could be how you handle money, how you handle time, how you treat, how you treat your family. And what Robert Munger's point in that simple little booklet is, and what Paul's is here with this prayer, is that Christ comes to indwell all of our life. And you say, well, those, that's kind of scary because some of those rooms I don't want anybody going in. And I don't want Christ going in those. And I, don't want, I don't even want anybody to know about them. So how do I do it? How can I make this step of him to, to have that? Well, it's through faith. That's what he says in verse 17. By faith. We receive him by faith. We trust him for eternity by faith. We've not seen it. We've not seen heaven. So to believe that he's gone to prepare a place where he'll come and take us to be with him, that's, that's faith. To trust, we can't see him now, to trust that he died on the cross, that my sins were put on him, that, that he was punished in my place, that's faith. So to say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. I've made a mess of this, and if this gets out, my name is Mud. But here's the door, here's the key that unlocks the door to that other room. And I want you to dwell in there. And that, that is a step of faith. That is a step of faith. And when he does, he works powerfully. And he will work powerfully in you and through you. Verses 18 go on. It continues that thought that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God wants you to understand his love for you. He wants you to believe in his love for you. He wants you to trust in his love for you. But if you represent a typical slice of Christendom in America today, you don't really believe it. You can quote John 3.16 till you are blue in the face. And yet, if we really, really talked about how much does God love you, once you move beyond the academics, most of us have, for one reason or another, have, very, have a very hard time understanding and believing that. And I think that's why we find Paul going back to that over and over and over in the New Testament. Now, my favorite verse on the love of God does not come from Ephesians. It comes from Romans, and it comes from Romans 8, where he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? Why does he say that? Things don't go your way one day. Something happens that disappoints you. What is, what is one of your first thoughts? Maybe you don't say it. God doesn't love me. If he loved me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. So here he says, will tribulation 
or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? Will those things separate us from the love of Christ? But in all these, and then he drops down, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. John Owen said, We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at his unspeakable love. D.L. Moody said, I know of no truth in the whole Bible that ought to come home to us with such power and tenderness as that of the love of God. And Matthew Henry said, the more intimate acquaintance we have with Christ's love to us, the more our love will be drawn to him. So the Apostle Paul, from prison, praying for them, wanted these believers to grasp the full dimensions of the love of Christ in other words, that they would understand it. And the emphasis there, the term that he uses, comprehend, is to understand via experience. Not just here, but that you know God loves you, that you ponder this, that you have no doubt about his love for you. It's not a matter here of trying to get God to love you more. That is not in here at all. It is about understanding how much God already loves you. We're not trying to get more of God's love. We're trying to understand and enjoy and comprehend and experience the love that God has already given to us. Now, this is critical, okay? I met with John Oliver, who used to pastor First Presbyterian Augusta for many years. He influenced many of you, especially those that, that went to school there in Augusta and were part of that church. When I first became pastor here, I went to meet with him for lunch. I set up an appointment and said, I'd just like to talk to you about especially the whole area of preaching week in and week out. We met for about three hours, and I remember with a lot of laughter. He was a very great sense of humor. But he said something in passing, and I, this is all I came away with. I don't remember the specific topics of what, except this. We talked about in sermon preparation, and I'm talking now as a preacher. If you're a preacher boy here, you know what I mean. He said, there will come a point in your presentation that you know you have a word from God. Now, I've, I've read many books on preaching. I took classes in seminary and out of seminary on preaching. I'd never heard anybody say that. But I knew what he was talking about. Because sometimes in the preparation of a sermon, you know that is the point that needs to be stressed right there. And it's somewhat subjective because there are many points here in this passage, obviously. But this week, this is the point. Verse 19 is the one. Now, you can judge whether it's really a word from God or not. Of course, it's his word, his revealed word, but whether it stands out. When he culminates his prayer that he prays that they would be strengthened and able to comprehend and to know the love of Christ, this is verse 19, verse 19, that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now you note what seems to be uh, a contrast or a contradiction, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's like a professor saying, you can try to get an A, but I don't give A's. You can try to learn the material, but by the way, you can't learn it. No one can understand it. So here he says, I want you to understand 
know the love of God, that surpasses knowledge. Well, it is so far beyond our ability fully to understand it. That's what I think he means. We can be filled up with it, but it's so far beyond. It's like taking a cup, a Dixie cup, and you sit on the beach at the Gulf of Mexico. That's the second beach thing I've mentioned. You get to see what's on my mind. Not with this weather. And you scoop up some water right there in the ocean, and it overflows the cup. Have you exhausted the Gulf of Mexico? Doesn't miss it. You have filled up and you are overflowing, and yet it is so much more water. You can't even imagine. It's, it's inestimable. So he wants us to be filled up with his love. Now here is what... Now here's the next part of that. As you perceive the prevailing love of God in Christ, you will experience power. Back to the power theme. How do we get this power? He said that was his prayer. By experiencing and knowing the love of God. He prays that they would grasp it, that they would be filled up to the fullness of the measure of God. The words filled to the measure means filled up, overflowing. So when we grasp the love of God, we are filled with the power of God. It was Thomas Chalmers who wrote the phrase, the expulsive power of a new affection. And he was describing the power that flows with and through love. That when you have an affection for something, but then you get a new affection and you love this, that your affection for this one is kind of drawn, pushed out because of the affection for this. So love for Christ drives out love of the things of the world. And your love for Christ must first spring from an awareness of his love for you. Now, I tried to think of some real situations. I'm not making these up. What causes a teenage girl to quit gossiping and slandering other people? When she knows Christ, it's when she begins to grasp God's love for her in Jesus, and she, in turn, begins to love Christ, and it drives out that which does not honor him. What causes a man to sever a long-term, immoral, adulterous relationship and return to loving his wife when he begins to follow Christ. It is when he begins to grasp God's love for him in Jesus, and he in turn loves him in return. What causes a teenage boy to quit indulging a long-practiced habit of viewing pornography? It is when he begins to grasp God's love for him in Jesus, and in turn he begins to love him. What causes a high school coach to quit using God's name in vain in front of the team? It's when he begins to grasp God's love for him in Jesus, and he in turn begins to love him. Why does a woman begin to find security in God rather than in possessions and social standing when that is all she's ever known? It is love for Christ as she grows in the knowledge of Christ's love for her. How does this work? About every month or two, I go fill up a little two-gallon can of gasoline for the lawnmower. It's a small task, but it's always a pain because always, you know, you never know you need it till you try to start the mower and it's empty. Well, I could arrive at the gas station. Here's a little two-gallon two container. So how am I going to get that air out? This can's got air in it. Somehow or another, I've got to get a vacuum pump and get the air out before I can put the gasoline in, right? No. What drives the air out? Filling it up with gasoline. Here he's saying, as we are filled, as we are filled up, that's the term he uses, filled up, 
with the knowledge of God's love and loving Christ, there is power in that to deal with the sin in our lives. That's where the power is. So where does this power come from? It comes from growing in the knowledge of God's love for me. Now, immediately in the church, there arises a fear. A fear that says, if you are preoccupied with the love of Christ, then that will lead to license and presumption and immorality, abandonment of God's law. But it's really just the opposite. In John 14, 15, there's a verse that was pointed out to me when I was in the eighth grade. I was at Montreat, North Carolina with a youth group. And my youth director who took us there was Rick Canada, serving him. Old-timers know who I'm talking about. But I'm there at Montreat, and someone pointed out to me a verse that began to influence me for many years. And it's John 14, 15, where Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I interpreted that verse that the evidence of loving God is that I obey him. Because I had never had emotional feelings toward God. And when I'd hear people say, well, I love God, I couldn't relate to that from any kind of emotional sense. And when someone said, I love God, I would say, yes, I obey God. That's what I was thinking. But you know, that's really not what he's saying in that verse. And I've come to realize that that verse is not given that proof of loving Christ will be my obedience. A more accurate explanation is that Christ is saying that keeping his commandments is a consequence of loving him. Rather than it being the proof that I love him, listen to the verse. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Can you hear? I know this is real quick and you're not seeing it. But I read that if you love me, show me you love me by obeying me. But here's the way I think Christ meant it. If you love me, as a result of that, then you will obey my commands. That's what you will do. So obedience is a loving response to God's affection. Our righteous conduct, our righteous thoughts, are a result of doing what the Spirit-filled heart loves to do, which is to respond to the love of God, which is so high, wide, long, and deep. We've said it here for the past two years. God wants you to get to know him. As you get to know him, you will learn to love him. As you love him, you will learn to trust him. As you trust him, you will learn to obey him. If you don't obey him, it's because you don't trust him. And if you don't trust him, it's because you don't love him. And if you don't love him, it's because you don't know him. So how does this affect ministering to others? You want to minister to others. You hear, well, if you're a believer, you ought to pray for other people. You ought to share your faith. You ought to do all these things. Well, if I'm filled with the love of God, then I want this person to be transformed with God's love. I want them to know God. So the desire to ministry then is not, well, I'm paid to do this, or this is just what I ought to do. Good Christians do this. I've got to show my love for Christ. No, it's I've experienced the love of God. I want this person to experience the love of God. You know, I want them to know him. And so the whole motivation in ministry changes. You're counseling another person, a friend of yours, who's in a destructive pattern of life. And the purpose then to talking to them is that the love of Christ would penetrate to the deepest purpose, uh, uh, the deepest part of that person's heart. That's why when Christ talked to the woman at the well, 
He said, look, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Don't you realize these things aren't going to satisfy you? I can give you living water. He wasn't irritated at her. He wanted her to know the truth for her own sake. So what, how do we apply this in parenting? I want my children to walk in truth. Therefore, I am compelled to provide a context where they are assured of God's love and that God's love is instinctively known, that it's expected, that it's perpetually there, that they know of God's love. And so when I blow it in front of them, I can say, look, I am sorry, and I'm grateful I've got a Heavenly Father who loves me and forgives, and I'm grateful you've got a Heavenly Father who loves and forgives you too. Aren't we thankful for the love of God? My own obedience, driven by the love of God. I may tell you this, okay, and, and then I've got one story, and that's it. Too hot. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I am very much an, an introvert. Well, I thought I had my handkerchief, but uh, I'm very much an introvert, and despite being a preacher, I'm much more comfortable standing up here talking to you. Very, I'm totally relaxed, as opposed to if I had to talk to somebody individually, that's when I really get nervous. Your pastor has issues. That's just one of them. <laughs> this past Friday, I am immersed in this passage. I've spent about four hours on it. For me, that's a long time. Barbara's over in Alabama. Her, her mom is toward the end. I'm going over there this afternoon. I've got a person from the school system keeping our son at home. So I'm at Starbucks, and I am in this thing. The caffeine, I mean, I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit or if it's the shot of espresso. Anyway, so I am, uh, I'm looking at this passage, looking at this passage, and I'm thinking about this thing of the love of God, and it has a profound effect on me as I'm sitting there. And I'm just thinking about God's love. Well, I see this guy that I never talked to. I say hello. I've said hello to him. I know his name. That's about it. Well, I engage him in conversation. I begin to ask him about his background. I begin to ask him about church. I begin to ask all this. Now, for you to think, well, you're a preacher. You ought to do stuff like that. The old saying, you're paid to be good. The rest of us are good for nothing. <laughs> well, I talk to him. Then I leave him and I go somewhere else. And I see this fellow at the wellness center, and he's disabled. And I've known him for about four years, talked to him. His wife left him because of his disability when it hit. He's not fully disabled. He can get around, but he's just real slow. I engage him in conversation. Now, folks, and, and, I'm, and I do it because I care about him, and I'm thinking, does he really know God's love for him? Now, that is a small, tiny thing that you may think, wait, where's the story, Chip? Where's the point? The point is I wouldn't have talked to them. I would have said hello. I would have done the minimum to be socially acceptable, and I'm preoccupied, and I got something to do, and I would have moved on. So when I look back later in the day, if somebody said, how did you, you see the answers to prayer today? I said, yeah. I had meaningful conversation, one for sure, and one partly, and that's not me. That was the power of God coming through exactly what Paul's saying. You experience the love of God, and as a result, there is power and strength by the Holy Spirit you would not normally have. And it's motivated by love. About three years ago, I told you what I'm going to tell you now. It was a story I heard. that had been a written story by Dr. Edward Eric Fushi. And he was a medical doctor, but he was also a major with one of our military units when we were in Iraq. So it's a number of years ago this happened. 
And he told this of how their unit had a certain area to patrol. And within that patrol area were several villages. And there was in particular a very poor village that they went through on a regular basis. And there were lots of children and they would see them. These kids that had nothing. So he knew of a school, an elementary school back in the Midwest where he was from, that raised clothes. They gave clothes, they would donate clothes to send over to a lot of these kids in Iraq. He put in, he communicated, and they sent a bunch of clothes that he and the other soldiers, next time they went through that village, they were going to distribute. And he didn't know that the school back home also sent a container of stuffed animals. So that was kind of a surprise. So they get there, and the kids have never seen stuffed animals. They are just going crazy. So they give all these things out. The next day, their unit is to go through that village on the way somewhere else, and they're driving up to the village from a long way off, near dirt road, and this girl is standing there with a stuffed lion standing in the road doing this, just holding it. And they're looking and saying, she ain't moving. They're going, moving along at a minimum speed of 20 miles an hour, and they said, she is, they radio back to the base, said, she is not moving. What do we do? And they said, do not stop. Do not stop fear of an ambush. Said you, and so they, she's still not moving. So he said, get around her, slow down a little, but do the best you can, but do not stop those vehicles. So they, they get off the road, and she's still just standing there doing this, and they go by. Well, as they're riding by, they look, and she's straddling a landmine that the night before someone had come through knowing the Americans would be coming back through and had buried it there in the road. And she was standing there so they wouldn't drive over that spot. See, love will do what force will never do. Love will do what coercion will never do. That's the kind of love that God has loved us in giving us his son. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is uh, mind-boggling to think that you want us to be filled up and know the love of Christ, which is beyond knowledge. And so we pray that our lives would be like Dixie Cups in the Gulf of Mexico, that we might be filled up with your love as we've seen it revealed to us who are yet sinners, and yet we see it in the life, the perfect life of Christ, the substitutionary death on the cross where he became the sin bearer, and now through faith in him we can be adopted into your family as your sons and daughters, and we, like Paul, can bow and pray to you as our Father. May that love in us motivate us to obey, to minister, to parent in a godly way, and to worship. We pray these things, and we also pray for our meal. We give you thanks for food, recognizing that you provide it for us in, in this place and in this time. You've provided abundantly, and we give you praise for that. And bless our fellowship, we pray that our conversation be honoring to you and edifying to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.